Welcome to the Undercurrent Podcast. I'm your host, Liana Lumawig, life coach, surfer, and ex-corporate girl living in Bali. I've been in unfulfilling jobs and relationships that used to drain my energy and confidence to the point where I was miserable. If you can relate, this podcast is for you. I'm here to tell you that you don't have to stay stuck and settle for anything less than what makes you happy. You can choose how to work, love, and live on your terms. And this podcast will show you how. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the Undercurrent Podcast. I want to welcome Desi Dangana to the show. Desi is a serial entrepreneur, the managing director of Plinth Agency. He's launched one of the nation's first cafe slash co-working spaces. He also founded Poleng Lounge, which was a Filipino restaurant and nightclub named one of SF's new top restaurants when he founded it. Desi is also a dedicated community advocate. He's leading the strategy for Soma Filipinas, a cultural district in San Francisco with his nonprofit Cultivate Labs, which is an art and business accelerator. It's been recognized for its impactful work and won awards in American Institute of Architecture, Next City, Fast Company, YBCA, and the Bold Italic. And just Desi is awesome. He believes that community, consciousness, and culture are the keys to developing today's thriving commercial ecosystems. And one more fun fact before I bring him on the show, Desi and I were actually roommates in San Francisco and we met through the good old Craigslist. And I'm really grateful that our paths crossed by chance in that way and for the friendship that we've had over the last several years. Welcome Desi to the show. Hey Liana, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, Desi, you've done so much in your career and you continue to surprise me with all of the new things that it seems like you create year after year. Have you always thought of yourself as a serial entrepreneur and creator in this way? You know, when I was a kid, I was really into Legos and I would always build things, spaceships, castles, buildings, uh, whatnot. I always saw myself as an inventor growing up. So in a way, I'm kind of just following that passion from when I was little and making things. Mm, okay. So it just starts with literal building blocks that you played with at a young age. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the suburbs east of L.A. in a community called West Covina in the San Gabriel Valley. Uh, it was predominantly Filipino and Latino. And so I was kind of surrounded by diversity uh, throughout my whole life. So much diversity that it was like the inverse of what the real world was like, because it wasn't really reflective of the rest of the world or the rest of America. Okay. Will you share more about what that's like, like growing up with all of this diversity with Filipinos and Latinos and how, like, if someone didn't grow up in that way, like, what can you share or how it was? So, you know, this was growing up in the 80s, and this is all pre-internet and almost pre-cable. And so 
the outside world was what you saw on TV. And it was basically white America. And so like everything I saw on TV was this like fictional world, which was actually based on, you know, mainstream America, which I was not living in. So it's kind of funny to see how the future has shaped up where now the demographics in America has shifted, where minorities are now becoming the majority. And so that kind of fictional world in the 80s on TV is now fiction. How did it shape you as a person growing up with such diversity? Um, Were you confused when you watched TV? Was there a disconnect? No, I just always knew that there was another world outside of my uh, surrounding community. And it actually kind of pushed me to apply to colleges that would take me outside of my bubble. I, I really wanted to like see the world outside of uh, my immediate community. So I uh, was accepted and took a seat at Whittier College. I kind of jokingly call it Whitey-Year College because I went from a high school where there was only a handful of like white kids, like maybe this many, so this, there was only this many Filipino kids. Okay. And what was that like? I think it was refreshing for me because I think it added to my creativity and being able to see other communities and learning about other people's backgrounds and learning how other people live and how other people see the world. Okay. So it boosted your creativity because your frame of reference and com- of community and who you interact with had expanded. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it it got to the point where I ended up studying abroad in Denmark to like seek out other cultures that were not my own culture. Okay. Was that a culture shock? It was a complete culture shock. (laughs) Uh, One, it's European. And two, it was like one of the more progressive, wealthy European countries. I, you know, we would take these orientation classes before we would go to kind of prepare us that it's going to be a different world. And, you know, it, the Danes and the Scandinavians like are such a very safe and homogeneous society where, you know, it's the place where jails do not have locks and, you know, kids are allowed to buy alcohol and pornography is in like store storefront windows and that's all okay. Wow. So different from here. Yeah. I feel like that kind of like, diversity of mindset and like being able to see that it is possible to live in different ways that are not the norm, you know, kind of inspired me in my life to kind of like also seek out a different path from what I thought when growing up as a kid, what my path was going to be. So you had an idea from your upbringing of how your path was going to kind of end up and living in different places, being exposed to different communities and cultures, had you change your path just by experiencing these different places? For sure, yeah. I mean, those are all different like inputs in like helping me form what is possible. Was it ever challenging for you to be you know, in other parts of the world and look different from other people and be different from other people. Um, I see the way in which it was expansive for you, but was it ever challenging? You know, not in Denmark. I mean, I did have instances. So back then in college, it was kind of like the grunge era. And so I actually used to have long hair that would like go down to here. 
<laughs> and I did notice that sometimes, like late at night when I get off like the train station, the people would walk across the street because I looked suspicious. Like I didn't belong there, obviously. You know, I'm not like the normal neighbor. So I think they're a little bit suspicious. But, you know, it wasn't antagonistic. It wasn't until I traveled to Morocco once, uh, like 20 years ago, that I really felt some deep-seated, like, prejudice against Asians. And it was why probably one of the few times in my travels where I actually wanted to go home. Wow. Okay. So you were already an adult and it was the first time you felt like you didn't belong. Yeah. It was the first time. I mean, in Morocco, it was so bad. It was like every day there would be a group of little kids running up to you going, Ching chong, ching chong, ching chong, ching chong. You know, at first I was like, okay, they're being cute. But, you know, and it happens like every day on the daily. It's like, this is not cute anymore. Right. So, yeah, it matters, right? The context of which cultures are different, right? If things are just different without being oppressed or without being, you know, judged, that's one thing you can manage. But if it's like these deliberate actions that which don't come from a good place, that can have like the opposite effect, right? Can close you off, can make you want to leave. Definitely not creative. Yeah, it was not a, a creative place to be. But you know what? I still appreciate Morocco for its beauty. You know, outside of like those instances, it was a, you know, a beautiful, beautiful country and really rich heritage. And I don't really regret going. I just kind of regret having those like those moments where I wanted to like go home or actually I don't feel like leaving my hotel room. Yeah. Yeah. I hear that. So yeah, you've been around the world. Tell me what happened. Like, how did your career get started after college? Okay. Uh, so in college, I was like a budding graphic designer. And so college for me, was like 1994. And uh, there was this thing called the information superhighway that was being talked about. And so I was kind of an early pioneer of the internet. Not to say I invented it, but I was an early adopter. So I like moved the school newspaper to like the internet and to a website and, you know, started designing websites for other companies. Like my claim to fame back then is that I designed the first hip hop e-commerce site uh, on Flash. It was for a call. Can I, it was kind of prolific in the like, Late 90s, uh, Arsenio Hall would always, always wear his clothes. They, they were kind of like pre-cross crawlers, big buckles, lots of leather like vests. So I designed his website. And then from there, uh, I was able to get a job up here in San Francisco. And that's what brought me up to the Bay Area was that I was designing websites. Wow. In the 90s. <laughs> yeah. In mid to late 90s. Yeah. Okay. So you're now in Silicon Valley. Right. You're in San Francisco in the 90s and you're doing this thing that is so new. How did you know, like what prompted you to jump on this? Like, how did you know this was an opportunity or this was like the next thing? You know, it was the future. I like many people, I saw the, the potential of the Internet and how it was going to connect the world and change the world. And I wanted to be a change maker, you know, after like seeing so many different places around the world, I saw that this is what it was going to connect people. And so I wanted to be part of this phenomenon. So moved up here in the Bay Area and got involved in the kind of internet revolution. Unfortunately, the world that we built 
isn't necessarily the world of equality that we all thought that we were going to transform. Okay. Will you say more about that? Um, you know, I remember being a San Franciscan and I always like reading like the alternative, like uh, news outlets, like back then it was the San Francisco Bay Guardian and they would always complain about like this. They, they, we were called techies back then. We weren't called startups. I think we're still called techies. Anyway, they were called dot coms back then. And like they would complain about how they were transforming the city in the wrong way. I really didn't understand because I, I thought that we were transforming the city for the better. But then slowly after some time, I started to see the city that I loved, which wasn't really just about technology. It was about like these free thinkers, the radicals, the mavericks, you know, the crazies, the kooks, the artists that made San Francisco uh, the special place that it was. I started seeing them having to leave the city uh, because they couldn't afford it. And that was the unintended consequence of this like technological revolution that I was a part of is that they would push people out, people that weren't in that inner circle that had access to, to technology or know how to leverage technology or access to the capital to like, you know, accelerate the use of technology. And it became this like perpetuating cycle of gentrification and displacement. Yeah, I see that like there's kind of two sides to that for you. It's like, well, on one hand, there's this excitement to be a part of this, a part of changing the world. And then on the other hand, the flip side, it's like you're also part of this movement of gentrification and, you know, kind of being a part of people leaving the city that they call home. Yeah, I mean, I actually was uh, protested as a gentrifier once. You know, you mentioned in my intro, I used to own a cafe co-working space. We were a hotbed for protests. And back then it was hard for me to stomach. Like, why are they protesting me? I'm a person of color. I'm not even a bazillionaire, like who they think I am. I'm just a normal guy just trying to make his dream happen. But in reality, gentrification is not about being a rich white man. It's being someone of some form of privilege, uh, not thinking about the consequences of their actions. Right. So in this case, like I want to kind of move it, uh, I guess, because we're on this topic. Um, what do you do then? Right. If you have an idea that you're passionate about and you are an entrepreneur, but you are a socially conscious person, what is the right move? There's in like business school, they're starting to teach triple bottom line, you know, because business is all about making a profit. But that is where things go wrong, where you're only like siloed and focused in on profit. You have to think about the outer rings around you. So like you can make money, but how are you affecting the local community with the money you're making? And then also, how are you also affecting the planet? So if you kind of broaden your horizon in terms of the metrics, you're kind of um, measuring yourself outside of just the bottom line, but like, what about the people around me? And what about the planet that we all live in? then you can affect change without having to kind of like really kind of sacrifice like whatever goal or vision or passion you have. You just have to have a greater context for, you know, you throw this pebble into the lake, what kind of ripples are going to occur? Absolutely. I love that. It's really just being aware of the impact of your actions and not just 
you know, having this kind of narrow, yeah, vision of just like a capitalistic vision just for yourself, right? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I've never heard of the triple bottom line. That's a really good way to think about it and a way to care about your business. Is it sustainable for the surrounding community and for the planet? Mm-hmm. And the business is sustainable on its own, but it can't be sustainable, you know, at the cost of your community or at the cost of the planet. Right. So you're designing website, but then you also mentioned that you had the first cafe at co-working spaces. Is that what came after you were designing websites? Oh yeah. Uh, getting into hospitality was like definitely after designing websites. So like the first internet bubble popped in 2001, but I was completely in love with the city and didn't want to leave. And so uh, a lot of people in the startup world at that time left San Francisco but those who were really invested or in love with the city stayed. And I ended up pivoting my career. There just wasn't any jobs for designing websites at that time, which sounds kind of ridiculous right now. But at that time, there wasn't a lot of jobs. So while I was in startups before the bubble popped, uh, one of the things that I was doing is that I was putting parties together at nightclubs as a social outlet. Cause you know, I'm just sitting here in front of my like computer terminal, like, not having a lot of social interaction. So this was my way to socially interact. And we were very successful in doing that. And we were having like a thousand people paying $5 to come into our, our nightclub events. So when the bubble popped, I'm like, we actually have kind of a little business here. And so we started taking nightclub promotions and event production seriously uh, to the point where we started getting some serious money from like lifestyle brands like Puma, Nike, and like Scion. So I actually started a a small agency around experiential marketing to like produce these types of events. And and we called it Electric Friends. And from that, we got to a point where your nightclub parties can only get so big. So, you know, the next step was either throw a gigantic festival or own your own venue. And so being someone from a marketing background, I realized that you know, when you develop an audience, you want to stay with that audience and that audience, their preferences are going to change. So we knew that they were going to stop going to nightclubs. And at some point they were going to start to socialize more in restaurants. And so that's how I got into hospitality. That was the natural evolution. Let's own our own venue, but not make it a straight nightclub. Let's make it a nightclub restaurant. And so that's how Pulling Lounge came about. Mm, Okay. Yeah. What was that like? moving into hospitality because you didn't have experience, right? With, you know, having a, an actual venue, you didn't have experience with like food and hospitality prior to that as a business. Were there a lot of surprises, growing pains? Oh, for sure. There was a lot of surprises, but you know, the thing that I learned from it was that you want to hire people that are smarter than you and to be able to manage and to let go when they're when you build a team of people that are also smart. And that's what that's the skill set that taught me was to build that kind of company culture. Because that was the only way we were going to function is that I had to bring other managers who were more seasoned than I was and trust that they were going to run it properly and then also learn from them. Okay. So that's what it taught me. Other than that, it was also a great time. I mean, <laughs> I still run into people who talk about the Paul Lang lounge days. And I run into couples who tell me that they met there and now 
they're married and have kids. So it was a real special time in my life. Yeah, yeah. I remember you talking about that, like with fondness, like that was not just a business that you had, but it was something, it gave you something to nurture your soul in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I thrived off people's energy and that was a place where we just built massive amounts of energy that was fueled by Pan-Asian street food, tea and alcohol and hip hop. And that's cool that you did that at a time like this. What year was it? 2006? 2005 to 2010. Oh, wow. Okay. So five years of this. And, and I think at the time, you know, in San Francisco, we have these, these kind of parties and communities that like locally we, you know, we enjoy being in, but kind of on like a, a national scale, like Filipino food and venues like this were very rare to see. Mm -hmm. They're super rare. I mean, at that point, we didn't even want to call ourselves a Filipino restaurant because we thought that that was going to be a disaster. The, 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 you know, the community wasn't ready for it. The food world wasn't ready for it. But in the end, our menu became 80% Filipino. And that's what we were actually known for is kind of pioneering that. Yeah. What made you decide to kind of go all in in this direction, even though it was kind of before its time in a way? Oh, we actually did not wave the Filipino flag at that point. We actually were, we called ourselves a, a restaurant uh, based on the Balinese notion of the interplay of duality. So we were actually more Balinese themed, but the menu was definitely more Filipino. And that was our way of kind of, unfortunately, that was our way of, kind of sugarcoating it to the general public. This is what Filipino food is kind of like. This is what Filipino culture is kind of like. It was a familiar reference point. Yeah, I mean, that's something that's super interesting because like anyone who's really tried Filipino food that I know loves it, right? It's the star of our culture, right? If you've been to a Filipino party, people just rave about it. And to hear you have to kind of sugarcoat like our culture in a way because it just wasn't palatable at the time is just really interesting to talk about now because what you're doing with your work today is completely like you know burst wide open in comparison to what you had to do to be marketable mm -hmm. the work that i'm doing now building a filipino cultural district is kind of like 180 from where i started in college where i actually wanted to get away from my community and i want to see another world but as I've grown older, I've actually have been brought back into my community to push it forward. Really kind of ironic. Yeah. Like, how did that happen? How did that happen? I don't know. Maybe the universe decided that this, this was going to be my path. Um, I think it was more of like an opportunity. So, you know, I love and hate my culture. I guess that's why, you know, I love it so much that I can hate it. Tell me more. You know, there were just some things I didn't really uh, accept in Filipino culture. You know, nowadays it's acceptable to talk about the toxicity of like Filipino culture. And then, you know, I was affected by that. I think also growing up being a little bit more kind of out of the box. I didn't actually feel that I belonged in other Filipino American circles. So that's why I guess I wanted to seek other cultures because I didn't feel at home with my own culture, which is really ironic. But, you know, based on the work that I do right now. And I think, you know, having that perspective of not 
feeling belonging in my culture gives me another perspective of like how I can position Filipino culture now as I'm older. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think when you and I met, I was kind of on that journey as well. Like I, I found it really interesting that you were delving into your Filipino culture and heritage more and representing. And I thought that that was really admirable because I was, my days were filled in tech companies where, you know, I was the only person that really looked like me in all the offices. So I found it really refreshing, but also, you know, foreign to have a friend like you doing this. And I didn't know that you were kind of, you know, on the opposite end of the arc of, you know, kind of disassociating and then now integrating and seeking community and building community. Yeah, I'm like the poster boy now of like Filipino, like community engagement. Um, and I love it. You know, I actually don't have any qualms with it. I just think that there is this uh, unharnessed potential in our community. You know, for one reason or another, is it colonialism? Is it because of the factionalism that we, we weren't able to like see our full potential? But I think, you know, my life journey and being able to explore the world has given me a perspective that, you know, we do have a chance, you know, we uh, do mean something as a society, as a culture, as a community. And I think our role when people will look back on San Francisco and see this really special time in San Francisco, because, you know, before the pandemic, San Francisco was like the center of like tech wealth. It was also the center of gentrification and uh, economics gone wrong. And, you know, the pandemic really shook that all up, you know. It's still to be determined how San Francisco will shape itself. But I really feel and I really believe that the Filipino community, when people look back in history of like how San Francisco uh, bounced back, they're going to look at the Filipino community and we're going to be one of those communities that help San Francisco find its soul again and kind of realign to what is important and when it comes to economic development. And my, my life passion now is like, finding a way to make economic development work, not only just for Filipinos, but other marginalized communities. So what I'm doing in the work here in Soma Filipinas is really this kind of grand experiment that is being funded by the city of San Francisco of if we can empower communities and let them drive the seat of their community built strategies, can they fix the problems that city government can't? And so, that's what we do. And, you know, what we do, like in Soma Filipinas is we, the city really, the city's great. They, they support us, but they also test us. So like, I'm talking about economic development, I'm like, sure, do economic development in this shitty ass alley. It's filled with homeless people and literal shit and like needles. And then we clean it up and we make it safe for families and becomes this like, cultural Disneyland for Filipinos and others to come in and reimagine what their space could be. Um, I mean, this space right here that I'm in right now, uh, we built this during the pandemic. This was an abandoned retail space that the city was sitting on for like a decade. They didn't know what to do with it, but we have like an imagination like, yeah, it looks like shit, but it's a really a blank canvas for us to apply our dreams and intentions to. And so we like 
built this streaming hub that you can see from Mission Street across from the Westfield. And it's actually an artist studio. And this is our way of bringing arts and culture back to San Francisco is making space for artists and allowing them to create and do really kind of innovative things in terms of retail and economic development, allow artists to thrive. Wonderful. Wow. Yeah, I applaud you for the work that you do. You know, it, it also kind of seems like this work that you do is kind of reversing, I guess, some of the part that you played back when you first came to San Francisco, right, in the gentrification of the city. And now you're kind of giving back in this way, you're bringing artists back, you're amplifying voices, you're offering a space for people to come up, right, people from the community to come up. Mm -hmm. And I want to dig in, you said something about, like, the Filipino community or marginalized communities and how they can help the city. Can you share in what way, like what the impact would be and what the help would look like? So every city is seeking to be like San Francisco in some way. It's usually around wealth. They want to become wealthy like San Francisco, but there's a lot of unintended consequences to this wealth. So you'll have longtime residents get pushed out. Uh, you'll have income inequality grow. And then you'll see homelessness and drug addiction blossom. And so the way to solve that is you have to make economics work for those that aren't in the inner circle, right? And typically the inner circle are people that have access to capital. And so our community here in Soma Filipinas, we don't have access to capital. You know, we don't own a lot of buildings. We actually don't have a lot of businesses. But the thing that we have going for us is that we're organized as a community and we have a vibrant arts and culture scene. And if we're able to unlock the kind of higher vibrational power of arts and culture, then, you know, with really strategic thinking and programs, you can harness that energy and then start to create economic opportunity for those community members. Yeah, okay, I'm making that connection now. And what a beautiful vision that you had. So did this come from like a brainstorm session of like, what does our community do well? Did you already know this? Did you have to go on a journey to kind of pull out and extract how this would kind of fit in with mm -hmm. the way that it all worked, I guess? Part of knowing that this was going to work was just I already, being Filipino, I already know what we were good at. But also, you know, my life journey of seeing possibilities that didn't look possible. And if I only grew up in San Francisco and if I only grew up in Soma, I would only see the world presented to me. But because I was privileged to be able to travel the world and interact with different people and go to a college where there weren't a lot of different other Filipinos, that I was able to see possibilities for this blank canvas that I see of the city mm -hmm. and as a community, you know, and we're very lucky, you know, it's still San Francisco. It's still extremely progressive. So they're willing to like place bets on, on the underdogs and it's wealthy. There is resources to make things happen. It's all about like having that imagination, the grit, the determination and the organization to like focus all of that. 
you mentioned something around other communities following um, what you're doing with the Filipino community and how can that, like, what is your vision for that? Yeah. So, you know, the work that I do is definitely benefiting Filipinos right now, but the, the framework of how we're doing our work is not exclusive to Filipinos. You know, it's any community that's has a vibrant arts and culture component. And so, um, you know, we're seeing our model being adopted in uh, the Central Valley right now. There is a group called the Community Hub that is starting to follow the same uh, steps that we're doing. They're, they're Filipino and Samoan based, but they're very kind of API broad. You know, we see other Filipino communities like uh, the Mabuhay District in Canada doing almost the same exact things that we're doing. And it is no secret that they're inspired by the work that we do here. And now also the Japanese community here in San Francisco is turning to our strategies to help revitalize Japantown. And I know this because they've hired me as a consultant and I've kind of laid out a framework for them to kind of follow. So it's definitely gone beyond the borders of just Filipinos in Soma or Filipinos in Canada. Now it's starting to really affect the Japanese community and hopefully it'll be other communities as well. You know, it's it's not a, a strict doctrine or Bible for people to follow. You know, it's certain steps the communities have to take and then kind of tweak to their own needs. And then they can turn economic development around. What is your vision for the future, for the work that you are doing and for you as a person? So it's definitely seeing other communities thrive by kind of learning from what we've done. I really want to see San Francisco turn around and I want it to be a model community. You know, I was always attracted to San Francisco because of the 60s and the Kumbaya. And I, you know, there's still that undercurrent of that. And, you know, I'm inspired by that. I'm kind of a, a lightweight, like undercover socialist. So I do want to see uh, a world that's more equitable. And I think San Francisco can kind of carve out that niche and really kind of be that leader in America and if not in the world. That's what I see. Wonderful. The visions that you have, like the thing that I love about you, Desi, is that when you have a vision, when you have an idea, whether it's, you know, starting your businesses or all of these organizations, being a community leader, or even designing our living room as a roommate. <laughs> like you have these visions that are very strong and you make them happen. And I just love seeing a lot of your ideas that you have and the passion that you have behind it come to fruition. So I just wanna acknowledge you for all the amazing work that you've done for our community in San Francisco. And now it's having a ripple effect in other parts around the world. And it's really, you know, supporting people from marginalized communities who once previously really didn't have the resources or um, the voice to help them. And, and you're doing that. And that's amazing. Thanks. You know, I think I do want to say one thing and I think you're trying to get me to say is like, where does this inspiration come from? Right? Yes. Is it like I'm like reading like academic studies to find the best practices sometimes? Um, but really, I think it's when I get into this higher vibrational state. I mean, 
a lot of ideas, uh, inspiration comes from like when I go to music festivals or I go to concerts or I go to like nightclubs, you know, when I feel this kind of like greater connection with the, the vibration around me and the people around me, you know, that is kind of unspoken, you know, there is kind of a higher, I can't describe it. I guess it's my way of spirituality. There is a higher truth and a power that you can tap into. And some people have that gift where they can, and some people can't, and some people find different ways to get to it. And I just happen to find it sometimes on the dance floor. Yeah. Okay. So you have these opened up channels and there's something about dancing and kind of being in a high vibrational state that allows you to kind of channel your higher power or the higher power, whatever it is. And you can just take that and express it through, you know, yourself and the resources that you have access to. Yeah. Wonderful. Sometimes the idea is just like, just snap in there. And then I, I see it so clearly, the steps that I need to take. And then I just start to march towards it. Great. So it's just really trusting what comes. Mm -hmm. Or it's also finding other individuals who can kind of see the same vision as well. Like I don't do everything like this space that I showed you and this like streaming hub that I showed uh, I'm in right now. I didn't build it per se, but I found other like-minded creatives. And then, you know, I, I've learned a process to like work with other creatives to like get to an end goal. And then we start to co-create, you know, yeah. I didn't come up with this like wallpaper pattern seer did. I didn't come up with this pattern seer did, but you know, in talking and vibing and like co-creating, you know, we were able to like express this together. Yeah. Okay. So it's not even just about like having a vision on your own and creating. It's also kind of like finding this, these matching vibrations, these matching souls that share, you know, a similar vision. Right. And then when you do it together, that's kind of the magic behind how things really, you know, get done and get kind of blow up in the best way. You can be a conductor, but you'll never get anything done if you don't have an orchestra. And if you're not in tune together, you're never going to have that symphony. Mm, I love that analogy. Yeah. Um, for people who want to get involved in the community, or for people who want to contact you, how can they reach you? Well, if you're looking for some consulting work, I have an agency called Plinth Agency. You can look us up, plinthagency.com. See all the kinds of different projects that we've worked on for for-profits and non-profits. Uh, but if you really want to see marginalized communities accelerate and see some of the Filipinas thrive, uh, hit us up at cultivatelabs.org. Check out our project spaces like where I'm here, balaicreative.org, undiscoveredsf.com, kappagardens.com, and jointheseednetwork.org. Great. Okay, so those are different channels that you can connect with Desi and support or accelerate your own um, visions that you might have. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. It's always good to connect with you. And I've really enjoyed learning even more about you and your journey. Thanks, Leanna. Thanks, Desi. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Undercurrent Podcast. 
If we're not yet connected on Instagram, give me a follow at Liana Lumawig and at The Undercurrent Podcast. For more tips on how to design your life on your terms, or if you'd like to reach out, visit lianalumawig.com or you can always DM me on Instagram at The Undercurrent Podcast. Take care, my friends, and see you next week. 